Welcome to Brand Designs, the podcast where we follow the stories from brand owners, founders and senior leaders in retail and e-commerce as they share their incredible journeys as entrepreneurs, innovators and troubleshooters. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning and welcome to the next instalment of Brand Designs here with myself, James Davey and Nathan Lomax from the Armoury. Good morning, Nathan. How are you? Morning, James. Very well, thank you. Yourself? Good. Not too bad at all, actually. Technical issues we've had this morning with power outages in the glorious Norfolk <laughs> wilds, which I'm sure our guest will pick up on at some point in time, as he already has in the green room, so that's perfectly fine. But um, <laughs> today I'm very pleased to welcome aboard Phil Bingham, who is the one of the founders of Velo Vixen. And welcome to uh, Brand Designs, Phil. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And yes, you're absolutely right. No low blows or cheap shots about Norfolk power generation here. I'm sure it's been excellent. <laughs> it's it's all it's all tractors and grain-based power. I'm sure. <laughs> the the today is very much as we as we do with every brand designs. will kind of it's a founder for founder series. Really, kind of getting under the skin and examining, as we say, the blueprint to success for retail and e-commerce. And so, the first thing we ask every kind of guest onto the show is, please tell us a little bit more about Velovixen and uh, kind of how you came to the conclusion that it was the right thing to do for you. Well. Hands a tail, as with all these things. We've we've been at it for getting on for nine years now. The genesis of Velovitsum, well, first of all, we sell women's cycling kit, which sounds like a very particular niche, but is one of these things that actually is appealing to an enormous market that has, until recently, not been fully tapped, not been properly taken care of. How did we come to be involved in this? Well, I'm a guy for a start, so it seems a little peculiar that I'm talking about women's cycling kit. I guess it's an illustration that uh, a market and a niche is a niche. But very instrumental in the whole process was my wife, Liz. She and I went nearly, in fact, over 10 years ago now. We had met recently, summer of 2009 we met, and job situations changed rapidly thereafter. She'd been an actress for many years. She had the flexibility to do something a little different. I left my job within weeks of meeting her, and suddenly we had to make some decisions. So we decided, logically enough or not, to disappear off to the other side of the world and ride our bicycles up the length of the Americas. We spent a year doing this, and needless to say, had quite an adventure. Um, we cycled over the Andes, we went across deserts and mountains, and jungles and you name it, wonderful formative experience. She, as a, an additional, hadn't sat on a bike for 15 years. We did one training ride in the lead up to it on the basis that we would uh, ride our way into it, was the expression we kept using, which uh, to a greater or lesser degree worked. Anyway, uh, the, the upshot of this was that we realised in preparing for it and then talking about these experiences as we went, stopping off in random places, spending the night in petrol stations and jails and you name it. A lot of chat about what to do next. And it became clear that she had been very poorly looked after in most cases when it came to preparing for this trip to getting decent kit that suited her, fitted her, worked well and made her feel as though she was at the same level as male cyclists. And so when we came back, we started looking into this in more detail. And here we are. 10 years later, um, running what we now describe as the home of women's cycling. We are a little more than just cycling kit, so we can probably come on to that later. But uh, we've very much become a hub for female cyclists in the UK and beyond. And it has been so a Phil, in the last 10 years, 
sorry, JD, I was just going to say, Phil, in the last 10 years, what's been the biggest challenge on it? Because it sounds like quite an adventure, right from the kind of cycling across the Americas through to where we are today. I'm sure there's been many ups and downs, but what's been the biggest challenges you've been scaling the business? Well, the cycling bit was the easy bit, to be honest. That's uh, Life becomes very simple when you're pedaling your bike all day and all you need to think about is where you're going to stay and where you're going to find your next dose of ice cream and <laughs> obviously things became more complicated as we started running the business in the early days you've got a little more rope with which to hang yourself you can be a, a, a bit more experimental there are fewer people depending on it and you can do it on a bit of a shoestring i'd say the biggest challenge to date was actually last year and not for the obvious reasons necessarily we we were very much on the, the fortunate side of things i think there were a few gray areas in the last 12 months, either you got lucky or you had a really grim time of it. We happened to be in one of the sectors that thrived. And so the demand increased exponentially. Suddenly, people who would never have thought they would climb on a bike were hauling their old bikes out of the shed and pedaling to work or getting outside to get some fresh air. We, well, on two fronts, there were challenges. First of all, the supply chain creaked horribly we sell other people's kits historically have sold largely other people's kits so a number of brands that people may have heard of endura madison Olazumi, big names that are global cycling brands large or small the supply chains are breaking because quite simply the demand was too much to keep up so we had to be very nimble in in coping with that and finding ways to allow people to buy gear that they needed for riding their bikes whether it was a basic 35 pound pair of shorts or a very high spec 200 pound pair of shorts we needed to make sure people were catered to so that was a challenge but also keeping up as i'm sure many founders have found you, you take a bit of quantum leap forward in terms of top line and keeping up with systems that can match that is a real challenge and last year to give you a sense within about six months we launched our new site we changed our complete fulfillment system we realized with very quickly within a matter of days or weeks of lockdown beginning that we simply couldn't keep up with our current rather more manual system. So we, we had to make that traumatic change to something far more high tech, but clearly the change is, is painful. We changed everything from our email systems to our newsletter systems, you name it. It's been, it was a, a huge year of growth and of the system to keep pace and it was challenging but we've come out the other end in a much better position to scale from here. So we've, we've taken the, the pain, but it was a good pain. It's one of those classic things, isn't it, about trying to, in, in, the, in the last 12 months, it's almost stimulated that drive for efficiency, hasn't it? Because most, most businesses during the pandemic will be like, oh my God, how am I going to keep my business going? You know, I'm possibly in a market that isn't digitally forward, if I can put it that. Some brands don't, haven't taken the jump to e-commerce. The bit which we haven't really talked about on this series necessarily as yet is that, that constant need to look for efficiencies and ways to kind of keep the wheels moving as you scale because it is it is it is a massive challenge whether that's people because people bring massive complexities and systems bring another massive change in complexity don't they have have you kind of found that juggling that with the day-to-day -day business of, of kind of running as well as trying to change as well it, it is a real challenge the question particularly when you have a small team I and mean, we have on a busy day here you might find six of us Ultimately, if you're running a retail business, you've got to get stuff to people, people who are paying good money for goods. That has to be the, the primary priority. 
but at the same time, as you say, we were trying to, to go right down into the foundations of the thing to, to launch the new site, to, to get a whole new warehousing fulfillment system. Uh, we had to learn how to use it for a start. So it was, it was almost a, a kind of a university module in itself. Um, it's a juggling act. And we had to be very disciplined in how we segmented our time. We had to say that for, for these three hours after lunch, it's purely picking and packing, making sure that, that we get the goods to the customers on time as they would expect. And we had to fit everything else around that. Phil, with such a, uh, a closed cling, obviously you got into cycling, you did your cycling around the Americas, you came back, you set up the business. How do you find the work-life balance? It's something we talked a lot with founders on in the last few episodes is trying to strike that balance between being able to do what you enjoy and actually work taking over. Have you managed to find that balance or are you still struggling to hit it? Not with cycling, no. And I know a lot of people within the cycling world who really struggle to ride their bikes. I mean, it's a passion of mine, as it is with many people involved in the cycling sector. No doubt it's the same in a lot of comparable sectors, be that mountaineering or sailing or outdoor pursuits that people love. It seems to have gone in a sort of inverse correlation for me in how much I've been working on cycling versus how much I've actually been riding my bike. There's the family element as well. I think I've done better on that in as much as we've managed to keep things local. The work is four miles pedaling down a, a bike path from home. I've got two young daughters who are very kind of instrumental in, in making sure that we look after women properly. So it's a daily reminder of the, the future of our market. And I, I think I've, I've done a reasonable job of being there for them, but you can't do everything. And I think I've kind of accepted that it's life evolves. Hopping on my bike to go off and spend four hours riding around at a whim just doesn't happen. Again, you have to be quite disciplined, as, as everybody yeah. will know, managing your time and allowing you to, to continue some of your passions, but being realistic that you're not going to be able to continue all of them to the same degree as if you're working for someone else or don't have a family. Yeah. And just building on that, Bill, the husband and wife team, sorry, the, the husband and wife team mix, how have you found that? Because again, sometimes you'll be discussing things at work, but then it will naturally spill into home life and vice versa. How have you gone about that challenge? It's it's tricky. There's no question about that. I think any, any husband and wife team who claim that it's all plain sailing are probably lying. <laughs> Um, it, there are there are challenges. Clearly, if you get it right, it's fantastic because you are there for one another. You can throw ideas around it at any time of day or night. That said, we're pretty. I mean, we do discuss work at home, but on the whole, we try to keep a, a divide. The other thing I think in the last year that has really forced her arm is the fact that Liz has been looking after the girls. She's been spending more of her time, she's been furloughed. So aside from directorial duties, she hasn't been able to be involved to any degree really. And by not being involved for the last year, I think it's given her a sort of a refreshing breather in a way. And she's now looking to come back into the business, but with a, a clear head and able to, to take things on in a, in a sort of refreshed way. So she's almost moved to that kind of outside perspective piece for the last kind of 12 months in some ways. She's still obviously close to you and close to the business in some ways, but she would you say that it's helped with that kind of almost perspective looking in, going, actually, okay, here are some things which I'm seeing not being in the day-to-day? 
Well, I think it has, and I think the, the timing is interesting. We're, we're at the moment looking at reallocating uh, responsibilities amongst what well, is still a small team. As I say, we're, we're half a dozen of us at best. We're taking the opportunity as she looks to get back into the business to see what are people doing. There's a danger, I think, when you have a very small team that you mix and match a bit. People, people can be a little unsure as to ultimately where the buck stops. And we're going through a process at the moment, Liz included, myself included, being a lot more structured in how we allocate responsibilities, lines of management and so on. So yes, it's been a catalyst in a way. She's had this year of, of yes, being told broadly what's going on by me, but secondhand. And now we're looking to, to firm things up in a, in, a, in a way that will allow us to scale more sensibly over the next year or two. And how do you find that balance of roles within the business as a small team, you know, as you say, no more than six of you? How, what, what was your kind of first hire outside of you and Liz into the business? And, and was it the right hire? Was it where you actually, in, on reflection, was it the right person to kind of bring in? I'd say yes. We had one or two full starts, perhaps. And inevitably, you have people who come and go, are great for a few months and are formative in the early years. I suppose our most important person we've hired to date is Fran White, who is very much a figure within the women's cycling sector. A lot of people know her. She's she, she's a passionate cyclist. She does everything from, she's a Welsh cyclocross champion at the moment. She does a lot of road riding, mountain biking, everything short of sort of unicycling. If anybody knows her stuff, technically from, from 25 years of experience riding bikes, it's Fran. She came from a police background, so that gave her a certain rigor, discipline, and firmness, she keeps me in line, that's for sure. And she she essentially heads up our operations slash customer side. So she now works with Eleanor and Maddie, both of whom form a very good triumvirate of, of essentially doing a lot of the, the work that I shouldn't be doing as a CEO. And I've been delighted to pass it on to them, dealing with customers, which they do very well, dealing with products, merchandising, we're, we're moving over newsletters and that side of things. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think Fran has been instrumental. Phil, if you had the knowledge you've got now, but you could rewind the clocks 10 years to when you first started, what would you have done differently? I think since day one, people have always said, oh, well, you're going to do your own brand, aren't you? Which it, the answer has always been yes. In the end, selling other people's things, you, you can create a lovely business, you can work on margins, you can make the, 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 the offering increasingly attractive and you can cover more and more ground for customers. But when it comes to making the, the, the business valuable, having our own name out there, being visible within cycling circles makes a huge difference. It, there are the intangibles, just being a brand in and of yourself and the more tangible, more financially rewarding elements of margin of uh, well, purely making the adding value to the business. We denied for years. We we had full starts with different designers. We we hit the crossbar a number of times. Finally, last year we we pushed properly with our own brands, and it's been a huge success. It's our biggest selling brand now. We've had a, a great start to the year with it. We we had a very popular launch of the summer range back in February. And I think what's been gratifying is that although it did take time, each year that passed that we didn't have our own brand in scale, we did have more reputation from which to launch it. 
and so when we finally launched it we managed to build the hype we managed to get real anticipation going amongst our customer base and they they seem to love it i think it, you know it, in itself the, they are high quality items that we're selling and having had the experience we've had of knowing customers and the sorts of dynamics that our customer base shows we kind of knew what to be selling them we knew what would go down well in a, in a non-cynical way we we have a very good feel for our audience and what they like so having said we should have done it earlier yes in a way we should but by now we had a, a, a we'd narrowed the odds of it being a success there's a bit where you need a number, you need momentum, don't you? You need impetus for your own brand in many ways, because otherwise, with well, it's two circles. When we talk to some of the other people that have been on the series so far, we've we've got those that have started and they're, they're still quite small. They're only six weeks into their business and they've created this product that they've now got to go and find those customers, whatever that customer looks like. The bit which I think you've done the opposite way around is you've used not used other brands but you've used your complete understanding of the market and the need of that market to then say here are the products and the brands we think are perfect for you our target market and then built a customer first principle almost you're servicing the customer in the best way possible to give them the the correct experience that then gets attached to Velovixen. would that kind of be a reasonable summary I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're not intending to ditch the other brands that we sell far from it. We're, they're, they're a crucial part of what we do. And they are, in many cases, people will be wedded to particular brands and will always wear Castelli, Endura, whatever the brand might be. They're very well-known brands. You're not going to move everybody into your own brands. I think what we've done with our own brand is assimilated both what our audience, our, our market is looking for, but also pulled the best bits from the existing brands where there have been positive attributes in a given product we've we tried to allow that to find its way into our own products so yes we we see a lot of brands we have seen over the years a lot of brands that start from a kitchen table in some cases they kick off with a very small collection of, of cycling kit it's lovely it's passionate they are, they are passionate about it it's you know the heart and soul goes into it plus most of their savings generally the pattern we see is that that happens first up they throw everything at it it goes well buoyed by that first success they they double triple quadruple what they produce second time rounds maybe it stutters maybe they can't quite get the same momentum behind it and by the third one it's the difficult third album so often we see brands that have in theory everything going for them but if you don't have either the following or the the marketing clouds it's very hard to maintain that momentum and so as you say james i think by waiting, we actually did ourselves a favor, ultimately. Mm. We waited until we had that, not captive audience, but audience that believed in us and trusted our judgment. Phil, tell me a little bit more about the journey of finding brands for you guys to stock and to become part of the Velo Vixen family. How do you go about that? Obviously, you've got a bit of knowledge of the cycling industry, so you find a supplier that you like or respect, you then reach out to them, just talk me a bit about that, because I'm sure a lot of founders listening were going, we'd love to stock other people, no idea where to start. So how did you go about that? Um, there's a, there's an element of faking it to make it, of course, when in the, in the early weeks and months when you, you have next to nothing of a company. Uh, I mean, I remember very fondly having discussions with not even particularly big brands, but brands offering the sort of products we wanted and essentially going to them cap in hand and saying, look, we really want to sell your stuff. 
we'll pay for it up front, we'll hold the stock physically, we'll we'll do what it takes to be able to to have you know for you to do us the favor of allowing your products to go on our websites and yeah. partly it's, it's building trust and relationships with the individuals i mean i'm always a great believer in in having that that relationship more than just a purely business one if possible with brands and with with uh, you know, counterparties that you're dealing with and i think we've been reasonably good at that over the years there definitely came a point when we were no longer having to scratch around for for brands it was always relatively straightforward to stock smaller brands because we we met on a level that was it was small scale on both sides when we started to move into the bigger more recognized brands that was our next challenge where we needed to make more efforts to to you know sell ourselves i suppose how we were going to represent the brands well how we weren't going to discount unnecessarily how we were going to make them look great on the site we'd be efficient with processing and ordering and so on. And then there came a point where I remember very well, about three years ago, I'd gone to a, a, one of these trade events, which happened periodically for all sectors. I met one or two useful people, but a, a couple I hadn't quite, they, they'd been busy. I thought well, I'll call them later. Knock on the door as soon as I got back to my desk and it was the representative from one of these major cycling brands, global cycling brands saying, look, really sorry, we never managed to talk, but what can we do to be on your site? And I, the penny dropped at that point that we, the, the, the slope of the playing field had changed a little. Mm. Suddenly, we were a worthwhile platform to them. Clearly, you still need to look after these brands. They are major businesses, in some cases, turning over hundreds of millions. But I think we, we have the edge through catering entirely to women, which most other cycling companies do not have. So... You know, we don't have to be turning over a huge amount of a given brand to be on their radar now for women's stuff. Have you ever been tempted, Phil, to go into the men's world, seeing as you seem to have done so well in the ladies' market? Has there ever been that desire to go, you know what, let's expand or let's go into uh, a different sport altogether? We've talked about it. We, we have to be cognizant of limitations of what is a niche market, but it's easy to get duped into thinking it's a, a small niche market. It's a huge niche market. So I think there's still ample growth for, for expanding. The men's side of things is dangerous, we feel. We, I've been very influenced by a book that I read before I set up Bellavix and called Niche by a man called James Harkin. He is adamant. I mean, it's, it's now several years old, but I'm, I think the, the, the concept holds true that if you find a niche that you can build a reputation in, that has sensible scale to allow you to grow to a sensible level don't muddy the waters by then trying to go too far beyond that so i think the men's side of things there is a danger that we would we would be extending ourselves and losing our edge unnecessarily there are products we sell which men can use so we quite like that that sort of topsy-turvy element to it where in most cases a generic major cycling retailer will always start with a, a men's angle and then the women traditionally and in many cases still today are a little bit of an afterthought some people are doing it much better than they were but we like the, the the kind of contrariness of it we will be looking to get into other tangential fields for sure i mean it makes sense we we know our, our audience pretty well as i've said we know what they they do and how they operate female active customers tend to have more than cycling as a passion 
so we know that they in many cases they would also do pilates or running or triathlon or you know there are other sensible activities that it wouldn't be a massive style drift to move into and i think that's where ultimately our, our broadening of horizons lies but men probably not does that does that change you from being a a niche brand to more of a lifestyle brand is that is that a fair representation of where you could end up you're you're catering to these this 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 women's lifestyle of fitness and kind of sport well i don't see why not i think we have to be careful not to lose touch with our roots cycling is has been massively popular has grown massively in the last year and, and the opportunities are there but yes i mean it, we worked out very early on that for female cyclists it's part of a lifestyle I think in many cases, and I try not to generalise, but men will often determine themselves and identify themselves as a cyclist. Whereas women more often will say, I love cycling. In many cases, they're very proficient and, and every bit as, as capable on a bike as men. But they'll often say, I, I love cycling, but I also do this and I do this and this. I have a busy life. Again, at the risk of generalising, women have busy lives. There's a, they're, they're spinning a lot of plates. And cycling will often be just one of those. So, so yeah, spreading into other areas of interest for them makes eminent sense. Phil, you touched upon a book there that you read at the start of your journey, which really gave you some inspiration. Have there been other books or podcasts or people that you followed that have helped you along your journey that have really inspired you to keep going and pushing yourselves? Yes, I, mean, I, I try to. I think as, as many founders will recognise time is often limited and I should be better at carving out time to read external material. That book certainly before we set up was was key in, in looking at the area we might try to cover. One of the crucial things he mentioned in the book is, is the, the identity element of human beings. Just the fact that people want to be ident able to identify themselves as being a little different to the crowd. I think back in the 1950s and 60s, people were much more prone to being dictated to by the major brands, told what they should wear, what they should do, how they should live their lives. There's definitely been a trend that we've seen amongst our audience that people want to be able to wear things and take part in things that are a little different and mark them out from, from the masses. So that was, as I say, a very, very important book for me. I... I as somebody who has always loved sports, I love any kind of podcast or piece that brings the sport parallel into the, the company management side of things and vice versa. I think of a podcast I listened to recently where Toto Wolf, the, the head honcho at Mercedes Formula One yeah, team, nice. is interviewed by Jake Humphrey. It's, it's a podcast called The High, High Performance, Performance Podcast. podcast. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. I find that sort of thing fascinating because whether you can draw parallels between lowly Bellavix and hopefully not too lowly, but uh, and one of the most <laughs> rigorous and extraordinary combinations of human beings probably on the planet is debatable. But I think there's so much to learn from from just the the approach that somebody like Toto Wolf takes to to running a company, to not so much running a company but running human beings. I think that is. Yeah. It's a crucial reminder to me that it's it's all about people. He was asked the question of how much is science and how much is people. He said 100% people because they're the ones that create the science and, the, and and everything that comes with a company. I suppose that's that's a question for quite a few founders that we we have on the series is that they 
some of them are of a younger age, so they're just starting out. They've made a decision very early on in their life, whether it's in university or whatever, that they're going to jump into this creating something. Do you think there's, there is a pro or a con about coming into starting your business having gone through you know a little bit more of life experience or it you know if you as Nathan said you know fairly early on into if you could turn back the years would you have started something like Vala Vixen earlier having not gone into corporate life you know where, where do you sit on that are there kind of real pros and cons around it for me I think it was crucial to have done 12 or 15 years working elsewhere and I worked in the, in the world of finance and investment. I worked for a small company for 10 years where I was managing people's money and trying to find opportunities to, to invest it in mostly in alternative investments, hedge funds and the likes, which have now developed a slightly muddy reputation. But we, we met essentially with meeting a lot of small businesses. Very often this was groups of three or four or 10 people working in setups not dissimilar to the Armory or Bellavixen or Quickfire or you know, it was, it was small businesses trying to make it work, it happened to be in a different sector, but it gave me a very good insight over many years into what to look for in a business and the people involved in it. And I think it certainly gave me an edge in setting up Elevix and, and running it, but also in dealing with other companies. So you mentioned about suppliers and, and how to get in, get in through the door with them and how to develop a relationship with them. I, in a sense, I'd done a lot of that with these these companies that I'd been meeting month in, month out of my previous existence. So I was probably better prepared than I knew at the time. It feels like a big jump to go from the world of investment into the world of cycling. They're, in many ways, they are very different. But I think possibly to give me an edge. There's a little bit of a So Phil, I'm interested to hear. Go on, Jenny. No, I was just thinking that there's a, there is one benefit of being a brand new owner founder fresh out of universities is that you don't know the some of the pros and cons of corporate life. You don't get into that regular salaried kind of business. So actually having that, I've got, oh my God, I've got a wife or a family or a partner or whatever, and I need to jump into this whole thing of creating myself because that's, for me in particular, that was, that was quite a major thing. Oh my God, I'm going to do this on, not my own, but I'm going to do mm. this as part of my own thing, but I've still got a mortgage and the, the family and all those kind of things to come around it. There is that bit of being fresh to the market where you can kind of go, well, actually, this is my total passion. I'm throwing everything in, but it comes with its surprises along the way as well, doesn't it? So, For sure. I mean, you've got less to lose, haven't you, when you're fresh out of university and you're 22 years yeah. old. You, I mean, we, we had a little bit of a, a nest egg to put into this. So financially, we were at a, a head start. It wasn't in any way millions, but it was enough that we could get things up and running and, and run things ourselves for the first three or four years before having to go for outside investments. But the other thing that, that occurs to me is if you're one of the downsides, perhaps, is I'm my mid-40s, and I think if you're dealing with people who are 20 years younger, maybe you have an edge if you're meeting them at a more natural age level, that there will be people involved, there are people involved in the sector who are in many cases in their 20s and and sometimes there can be a kind of age mismatch i think for the most part you find ways to to overcome that if anything it's an advantage to to be able to look down the age scale rather than up so it's the holy grail for many owner founders to launch their own product range I'm keen to understand the process you went through to getting your own product to market because, again, many owner-founders love the idea of it, but when it comes to actually making it reality, they just wouldn't know where to start. So how did you go about it from the from the very beginning? I appreciate you've, you've taken all your learnings from the other brands that you've been stocking for many years, but then what do you do from this point onwards? 
Well, I mean, you're right, Nathan. We, it, it, this is part of the reason we, we kind of hit the crossbar a few times when we were trying to start with essentially a blank sheet of paper because particularly with clothing, there are so many moving parts. You've got to get your, your fit, your style, the, the materials, the factory, the even silly little things like zips and elastics. It's it's nigh on, not possible clearly, but it, it is very complicated for the first time. We were lucky in as much as we had a very strong relationship with a company called Stolen Goat, who we knew that their, their products were very popular with our customers. They produced very high quality technical kit, but they also produced visually very appealing items. And we they'd spoken to us a few times about doing something with them. In the end, we, we felt that as first timers, there would be a lot to be gained from going in with known quantities to some extent. We knew that the quality of the product was very high, the fit was good, our customers understood that they were comfortable with the price point. And so what we did was we essentially borrowed their designer. We spent a lot of time with, with their designer who has come up with some very inventive, very eye-catching designs. We knew which ones had, had worked well for our customers from the, the previous collections. And so we, we tried to incorporate some of that into what we were doing. It's very much about Ovix and products, but it comes with a sort of validation of an existing brand with a long record of, of producing great clothing. So we kind of any have the best of both Any worlds. testing, Phil? Did you take the product designs to a segment of your audience to get their feedback or actually based on your understanding of the market, were you able to make that decision yourselves? Well, we already had that in many ways because we'd, we'd been selling kit that was for the most part was a very similar pattern to what we're producing so the fit and sure. the, the, the actual the feel of riding in it or just wearing it wasn't going to be so different and we were able to to take what customers had, had fed back to us in their reviews or just purely phone calls or meeting them at events or we had a very good level of visibility of, of what they were expecting and what they liked and didn't like that's a really good yeah, example. We've also, I mean, I should add, we've all ridden in it ourselves as well. Yeah. I've, even I've, I've ridden a lot of the men's stuff. I tend not to wear the women's stuff. I think that's a bit questionable. But uh, <laughs> you've got to no, do we, what you've got to do. Worn. <laughs> it's one of those small sacrifices those. to make if you're running a women's cycling kit. Yeah, I'd be very much one of those those mammals. I think as it as it's called, isn't it? Middle-aged men in lycra. It's the kind of thing yes. you never want to see, just purely for road safety purposes. I it's think one step they... short of the vomit, which is the very old man in tights. Oh God, I <laughs> heard that, but that, that pretty much sums it up. The, the, the one thing I just want to touch on there was it, collaboration has certainly been very strong in that bringing that, that your own brand product to market in that collaboration mm. with Stolen Goat. And we're seeing more and more of it in the market. I think, was it Adidas and Gucci I saw recently partnering together to do, to do a limited edition range? Is, is there any kind of collaboration you would go, well, actually, if, if you know, the, I think Google call it a moonshot, isn't it? If there was a, the ideal collaboration, whether it's a brand celebrity or whatever, is, is there a brand in mind that you go, look, that is an absolute Velo Vixen collaboration just waiting to happen? It's a good question. We, we've been close to Sweaty Betty all the way through. Simon, who runs Sweaty Betty, is a good friend of mine. He's been very supportive and very generous with his time in at the various different stages of, of Velo Vixen. It was him who said, come on, you've got to get your own brand out there earlier than we did because they have always regretted not doing it earlier. We fell into the same trap as it happened for the reasons I've talked about. But they they appealed to a very similar sort of slice of the market. 
they've tended not to do cycling gear because uh, they've done some, they've come and gone with cycling gear. It, I think it's gone perfectly well, but it hasn't been a natural selling point for them or a natural corner of the market. You know, it's somebody like that where it's appealing to a tangentially connected audience to ours. There's quite an overlap anyway. And you know, we, we love the way they, they create products, the, the imagination, the, the way they work into people's ways of life there are others out there it's not only them but it certainly fits but we're, we're certainly we're up for it if the right person comes along yeah definitely the one, one in of the terms last... of community-based marketing just quickly i know that the velo vixen community and the they used to do cycle rides all together and all sorts and that's a a trick that many retailers <laughs> seem to miss is the importance of building that loyal fan base or community around their product just tell us a little bit more about that phil because last time we, well, we spoke some time ago i'm sure there was cycle rides that you guys were involved in and all sorts where you were really uniting lots of different people from lots of different whites that shared that that passion of cycling yeah i mean we've had to be a bit realistic in in how much we can lead cycle rides ourselves because needless to say we are a small team you can go out as many times as you want with a group of 10 people but it's not necessarily going to bring the attention of the masses to Velovix, fun as it might be. What we have done, however, which has been, in hindsight, a bit of a masterstroke. Um, we didn't know what a masterstroke it was going to be when we set it up, but we have a Facebook group, a closed Facebook group, which is only open to female cyclists of any uh, level. So they could be complete beginners, they could be professionals. You know, you could have... Joe Rousel or Danny King or gold medal winners at one end, you could have somebody who's hopped on their bike for the first time in forever at the other end. It, we now have, we're moving on towards 11,000 members within that. Everybody has to be validated to be allowed in. There are no big obstacles. You just have to be female and not a sort of spammer. But it's it's one of the most amazing marketing tools we have because it's, as I say, the numbers are big. The engagement levels are huge. We had... We grew to about 9,000 members. We doubled in size last year, but we had over a million interactions, likes or comments or posts or whatever last year, which I think is, is pretty extraordinary given a group of that size. And the tone of it, the, the, the kind of prevailing feel of it, I don't get to see that much of it, needless to say, and I shouldn't. But from, from the bits that get past my way and from the impression I get from the others, it, it's incredibly welcoming, inclusive constructive just use it's become a, a huge part of many people's lives they've made friends they've gone on rides with people they've met through the group which is all lovely and we we are delighted that that's happening but it also commercially works very well for us because it means that if we are wondering about whether a new product might work whether a new brand we should stock whether you know, which direction we should take in a certain respect we can put it to the group and we get really good feedback from them it's it's invaluable really for us. I think so. It's a great it's a great piece because many brands are so scared of opening up a group or letting their customers talk to each other on the on the on the wariness of they're just going to slate off the brand and they're going to say how bad it is and comment on bad delivery etc. But you know your your community it really is a community. They've 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 taken it upon themselves to kind of develop this incredibly engaging the piece a million engagements you know we talk about vanity metrics and social followers is is a vanity metric that the metric you have is from a 
relatively s growing volume, but a small group of very, very engaged users are, are driving stuff that you just couldn't get elsewhere. You know, you'd pay hundreds of thousands of pounds for focus groups and surveys and all that kind of stuff. Your voice of your customer is coming through in that channel incredibly strongly. I think it's a fantastic mm. initiative. Well, we're very lucky, I think, that our, our chosen field of expertise is full of very nice people and people who are, I mean, that sounds very trite, but people who are very passionate about what they're doing, the people for whom cycling has often been a transformative influence in their lives. It's the, the ability to get out and escape your worries, your, your stresses, your everything else going on in your life, and just to be able to ride your bike, wind in your hair, air in your lungs, you know, these are so valuable to people, whether from a physical or mental health perspective, and that's reflected, I think, in the group. So it's 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 been huge for us in many respects, but also for, for people who are part of it. And I think you're right, it's easy to, to look at vanity stats, but I think having that level of interaction is speaks volumes really both about our, our audience and about the, the sex that we're operating in. Phil, I'm keen to understand your thoughts on the rise of things like Peloton and the virtual cycling environment and whether that's seen as a massive threat and competitor to yourselves or actually really complementary because people can get their cycling fix and then they'd still want to take up cycling outdoors, etc. Is Peloton and, and organizations like that, is that helpful for VeloVixen as an organization or is it quite detrimental? No, 100% helpful actually. We, we love it. We're, we're big fans. We will well, except Fran, who hates indoor cycling, that's a whole other story. But most of us have, have done it and have enjoyed it over time. It's great for us because people have to wear, they don't have to wear, but in many cases they choose to wear technical cycling kit. It doesn't necessarily have to be the sort of kit you'd wear to go out on an all-day ride. You know, the padding doesn't have to be as thick. The, it, it needs to be lightweight if you're going to be very hot and sweaty inside. But these are subtleties. Essentially, people are wearing kit indoors or outdoors that is specific to cycling and the growth of peloton has been huge and, and i think what's interesting I, I always remember very clearly we did a small event in london within the first year of starting it was in one of the big canary wharf towers at, at one of the big institutions there somebody gave us a way in and we spent the afternoon talking to these high-powered well talking to the women because they were our market so many of them we would say are you a cyclist as they came past and they would say no no no, no. i'm on my way to my spin class yeah. and and there was a clear division that they, they weren't making the, the the kind of parallel in their minds between riding a bike and riding a, a turbo trainer or a spin bike or a swift bike peloton whatever you call it and there are plenty of people in within our kind of remit who would never go out the road for various reasons for security weather thinking they don't look right or whatever but they would do plenty of riding indoors and in many cases it's it's crucial for their their sort of health and well-being so it's, no we love it is the answer yeah it's it's understanding whether they're it's i think it's great that you've got that complementary set in the market and obviously you know we, we're in the uk we are but the majority of people have been a cyclist for a number of years fair weather cyclist i couldn't possibly think about going out in the cold and cycling so you know getting indoors and kind of doing turbo trainer or you know i'd love one of those with machines but i couldn't get it through finance control in the house but there is that bit around being able to put yourself away and use your cycling as a as a as a piece of well-being isn't it? It, it it's really important no question and actually talking of the, the facebook group we, we put together 
on a little bit of a whim, you put together a sort of splinter faction where if you're part of the group, you can join the, the indoor, we call it the fellow. Oh, it's gone, <laughs> which goes to show how much attention I pay to it. Luckily, other people are dealing with it. But anyway, it's a splinter group of our main group for indoor cycling. And in no time, we had a thousand members. And there were organized sessions, there was whiff sessions, people were gathering in their dozens to, to go off on these, going off, staying within their sitting room. But uh, during the pandemic, it was invaluable to people. Do you see so final question. Go on, Jelly. Far away. I was just going to say, final question from me was just to understand where Velo Vixen was heading. And so I guess it was yeah. a similar question to yourself, JD. But I just, we've touched upon, okay, it might dabble into other markets. But just as a, a real sneak peek into the next 12, 18 months of Velo Vixen, where is it heading, Phil? Well, we're, we're looking to make, as, as I mentioned earlier, we're making changes in how we're structured at the moment. This is not the sort of customer side of it, but we're, we're trying to bolster how we're organizing things from within. We're, we're going to be taking on a lot more marketing advice than we've had up to this point because we're, we're at the kind of jumping off point where many of the tasks I've been doing probably need to be done by more focused professionals within their marketing realms and, and bringing all the different marketing avenues together into a more manageable dashboard, should we say, where you, you can more sensibly decide which levers to pull to what degree. So there's going to be a lot of that in the next year or so, which will we hope take us up another level of, of scale and professionalism. As to what customers will see, we're, we're certainly intending to continue broadening our range. We want to continue working with all the brands we're working with and potentially add more. Going into sensibly aligned other other sectors, we spoke about well, there's wild swimming, there's triathlon, all these other areas where our audience will in many cases already have an interest. And, and pushing our own brand. No question we want to broaden our own brand, which up till now has been relatively narrow in its scope. But there's there's no reason, having had two or three successful seasons now, there's no reason not to continue broadening that to offer more types of products to people with the relevance and brand point. Phil, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think the one thing I'm, I'm seeing in the future is Vela Vixen pretty much on a cyclist as it passes me by as I kind of try and pedal along and this female cyclist is zooming past me at a rate of knots all I can see is a Vela Vixen logo on the back of their shirt so that's probably <laughs> likely to happen but it makes me think there should be some cheeky um slogans on the back of our next range addressing themselves to men who can't quite keep up that would be amazing. Yeah. Keep I up, gents, or something like that. Yeah. You'll get all the credit, gents. <laughs> Nothing too quite specific. <laughs> Brilliant. But I suppose for anyone that's listening, Phil, if you could just give us the name of the, the book and that author again, and we'll put it in the comments. Um, if you're on YouTube, for example, on social, please check below for the comments for a link to the book. But um, could you just sure. remind us that book again? Yes, it's called Niche, and it's by a man called James Harkin, H-A-R-K-I-N. Fantastic. That's awesome. So check out that particular book. I think the niche element is has been a real conversation point today around how that's really helped you develop your business into being something valuable and uh, adding value to your community. I think anyone who wishes to check, check Velovixen out, velovixen.com, and you know, please, you know, we'll keep in touch and uh, see where the future holds for, for you and the brand. So thank you again for joining us today. Nathan, thanks again for co-hosting, and we will see everyone listening or viewing us on the other side for the next in this series of brand designs. Thank you again, Phil. Thanks again, Phil. Take Thank care. you so much. Thank you for having me.
Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Brand Designs. Make sure you follow us on social at the Armory Agency to be notified as we release each new episode. And if you're a brand owner or know someone who'd love to be part of our next series, drop us an email to social at the armory.agency. See you next time.